Hi, uh, my name is Darren Aronofsky. It's May 10th, 2007. I'm uh, sitting in my uh, living room in uh, New York City. Uh, my friend uh, Nico Tavanisi, who did uh, the documentary of the making of the fountain um, that's on the DVD, uh, came up with this idea uh, that for some reason. We'll try to be nice throughout this whole thing. Uh, the studio didn't want to go and do a voice commentary track, but um, we decided to put one out there and uh, let people check it out, and um, hopefully uh, you'll get something out of it. Um, I promise not to talk too much about what the film's about and clear up any of the uh, questions people have. I just talked more about um, some of the experience of uh, making this film. As many of you may know, uh, the movie took us about um, six, seven years to make. It was a really long trip. And uh, generally that happens to me all the time. You know, every time we sort of start a project, it's, it's a difficult road. Um, when we wanted to make a black and white, black and white movie about God and math, um, it, was, it was pretty tough to get people to give money to... Uh, to un unproved filmmakers make something very experimental and strange and um, then after the um, after Pi got a release and people were very um, interested in what we were going to do next uh, you know we sent them the book to Requiem for a Dream and no one wanted to get involved with that so uh, the same thing sort of happened with the fountain it was a very long path but it's been my main focus for the last six years, this film, and it's everything I've wanted to do. I think the film always started off with um, this idea of, 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 of taking sci-fi to a new and different place. Um, I felt that science fiction had really been hijacked by techno-lust and, and um, you know, movies that were really interested in um, gadgets and... Uh, and, and I kind of feel like audiences sort of, we've all seen that and all done that. And uh, I was more interested in kind of psychedelic sci-fi and inner space science fiction. Kind of the science fiction we played around with in Pi. Um, so one of the first things we thought about doing was um, combining history and uh, the future. We liked the idea of... Um, contrasting something really long ago with something really really deep in the future and um, so we you know I started to think about historically which which time periods really interested me and I always knew I wanted to do something with a warrior um, and uh, for a long time since I was uh, I guess since I was a teenager I had really been uh, into uh, Mayan civilization and Mayan archaeology. Um, when I was in college, me and a couple of friends drove a beat-up uh, 1972 uh, piece of shit car down to Belize, and on the way we got um, we got lost in a lot of the Mayan architecture. And since then, I've kind of had this big fascination with that world because. You know, it was a great civilization on the scale of, of something, you know, 
we live in today, um, yet it was completely, um, completely disappeared. There was one moment when um, we were driving down a road from, um, across uh, the southern Yucatan. There's this one road that basically uh, crosses from west to east. Um, uh, and, and it's actually a, a modern-day road that's built on top of an ancient Mayan um, trading road. And on the side of the road are these, all these little tiny Mayan towns that have been abandoned for, um, for you know, centuries um, and, and really get very few visitors because they're pretty off the beaten track of tourists. But since we were driving down the road on the way to Belize, we, we stopped at a lot of them. And uh, one night, uh, or one late day, we were at one of these places, and we were the first people to be there in over a year. And the uh, sun was setting, and it was a small Mayan, Mayan uh, trading post, you know, four buildings with a plaza in the middle. And uh, back in the day, um, that plaza would have been filled with hundreds and uh, thousands of people trading all different types of goods. But uh, now, you know, years later, it was empty. But what I notice is right in the center of this plaza were all these ants, a whole civilization of anthills and ants, you know, with long trails going off into the, into the uh, jungle surrounding and, and bringing back leaves and all different types of food and supplies. What was interesting to me, I kind of had one of those moments where, you know, there's something so micro, uh, uh, you know, representing so, something so macro, which was, you know, this... this this now a great civilization of ants had taken over where a great civilization of humans had um, had once lived and and existed but so it kind of stayed with me that there was all these different connections and uh, so when I started to think about uh, what to do I um I, I you know what civilization to use I, I started to look at the Mayans and all their cosmology stuff because they were just fascinated by cosmologies. They, they, their real power, the power of, of, of the priesthood and, and the royalty was based on their knowledge of the stars because they were able to predict celestial movements and that type of knowledge allowed them the power over, over other people. Um, so all the Mayan, Mayan mythology in the film, oh, excuse me, not the Mayan necessarily mythology, but their cosmology is really based on on truth. Um, they always looked at those three stars of the Orion, what we call the Orion Nebula, and uh, we actually see the three stars that are are the belt of Orion when we look up. They actually saw the triangle, and in their homes, they actually their hearthstones were in the formation of a triangle, with the fire in the center of them, and that fire was Shabalba, which is the same thing as the Orion Nebula, which is uh, you know where. Tom is traveling to in, in this future sequence. That shot is uh, one of the shots I'm most proud of. It, it was one of the first shots we, we conceived of when we worked on the film. Um, that flip back and that pull out. And so I, I, I probably was working on it for four or five years before we finally got it right. That was another sort of, um, you know, when we started to think about sci-fi, we, we really made a rule very early on that we didn't want to do trucks in space. You know, if you think about it, kind of every sci-fi film has this, you know, same 
same idea of these souped-up trucks kind of floating around in space. There's been few films, maybe Buckaroo Banzai being one of them, where you have an organic element in the film. So we started to try and figure out how could we do something really different with space. Um, and so one of the things was to try and reinvent the spaceship. And as many people know, you know, there's no friction in space, so there's really no need for constant propulsion like you see at the back of most rocket ships. You know, that's from the idea that we have to escape Earth's gravity, but once you're in space and you have a certain amount of speed, you don't really, you know, need propulsion. You can just sort of be going. So we started to, you know, think about a ship without that wasn't made out of steel and that didn't have engines. Um, and that slowly came, you know, slowly but surely we start to come up with an idea of, well, what, what could this material, this ship be made out of? And, you know, really the thing that's going on in space while you're traveling through it is the view. And that opened up the idea of doing a bubble ship, as we called it. We wanted to sort of erase all sort of evidence of technology because you know, we didn't want to make a, a technology-based film. We wanted to make a film about about the organic and about, you know, where things may return to, which is about connecting with the planet in, in, in a way that uh, we've forgotten. Casting was a... Uh, was a was a long and hard process, and you know because I'm always looking for people that uh, connect with the material. If you're going to do something that's very different, you know you need that support basis. So I had met Hugh Jackman many years ago uh, at a bar in Lower Manhattan. I think after um, uh, the X Men Two premiere or something. Uh, somehow I ended up being introduced to him and uh, we kind of remembered the next time I saw him it was uh, actually it was probably after the X-Men premiere because the next time I met him uh, I was uh, in a gym at a hotel uh, doing some work in Los Angeles and you know I was trying to get shape and I was struggling with my uh, you know my measly uh, dumbbells and suddenly <laughs> Someone across the gym is uh, yanking uh, a machine all out of its bolts, you know, and shaking the entire room. And I look over, and it was uh, Hugh. So I said hello, and he was very nice and friendly, and that was the second time I saw him. And then uh, many years later, I went to uh, see... Uh, I was in uh, New York, and I, I was only in New York for two, three days, and uh, I had to go see uh, three... Broadway shows and the first night was the show and it wasn't very good and then the second night I went to a second show it wasn't very good and I was really burnt out and exhausted and the third night I had tickets to see Hugh Jackman and uh, The Boy From Oz and I was like you know really wasn't too excited about going but eventually I dragged myself out and I went and um, he just blew me away um, and uh, I just found myself on, you know, my feet clapping away and <clears throat> backstage uh, he was really friendly and I decided to see what he would think uh, about this, this thing we were trying to do and he read it that night and called me the next day and said he really, really, you know, wanted to do it.
and uh, we started to talk about it, and it was clear that, uh, you know, he was thinking about a lot of the same ideas that I was trying to write about in the script of The Fountain. <clears throat> then we started casting for Izzy. Hugh suggested Rachel, and uh, turned out to be a, um, you know, a really great idea. They just had a tremendous amount of chemistry and connection. Everything in the background of the film, including um, of, of, of all these space sequences, including um, those stars behind them, um, is, is nothing was generated by computers. Those stars were um, photographed, um, not actual stars, but they were photographed. And a lot of what you'll see in the backgrounds of this of the film were, um, you know, organic elements and. Uh, and uh, that was just always, I, I just wanted to get away from CGI because I kind of felt that CGI was, uh, was um, just people had seen it so much. Once again, I wanted to try and do something that looked very different and was unique. So at a certain point, we decided to not only make it a mixture of, of two time periods, we realized that those two time periods were actually going to be the um, edge. Um, they're kind of like two weights that, you know, if you ever see one of those little things that you balance on your finger on a point, and it has two weights on the end, you buy in gift shops all across America. Well, you know, the future and the past, we realized were these balancing weights and that something was going to have to be the heart of the film and um, that uh, that became the present which was definitely not in the first conception when we first started thinking about the film I remember when we first had the film it was more of um, it, it, it was uh, it, we just didn't know how it all held together you probably uh, recognize Ethan Suplee um, who plays Manny in the film. And uh, he was definitely not what I imagined when I wrote the part. Uh, but uh, uh, he came in and he's just such an amazing actor that uh, I decided to rethink how I thought about it. Now I guess uh, he's, he's had very good success. This was always a conscious decision to sort of have the audience not know, you know, that Donovan was a monkey. Um, you can see Donovan in a few of the shots from above and stuff, but I think most people miss it until we reveal it a, a bit later. Um, Sean Patrick Thomas was another actor that he actually came in and read for me for a Requiem for a Dream. I was always really impressed with his um, acting and I just told him that one day I wanted to work with him, and so, um, you know, he was always in my mind for the lab sequences when we were, uh, when we were casting The Fountain. Donna Murph Murphy, too, is just a, a tremendous actress and um, Broadway star, and uh, 
uh, it was just a pleasure to work with her as well. This was a, this kind of moment of inspiration is something that I've uh, tried to um, capture in uh, a lot of my work in films. And uh, there's this sort of um, imagery, which I, I really don't want to talk about the symbolism of a lot of the imagery. I, I, um, I, I, you know, I think it's there for, you know, people to, dis to discover and stuff. Um, but, uh, I mean, you could look at, you know, these, these sequences and even this shot and... Um, it feels extremely celestial in a lot of ways. And, and that was a conscious effort to try and make all three time periods connected. Um, for us, uh, Tom's trip through the future sort of um, helped to, uh, with the design of, of, of the rest of the movie. Once again, we were trying to connect, uh, looking through telescopes, looking through microscopes, looking at uh, celestial bodies, and ultimately, you know, Tom's journey to Shababa, which many of you might know what Shababa kind of represents. Um, and, and I mean, uh, Izzy talks about it on the rooftop pretty, pretty clearly. That was not a real monkey. Um, but the effects were, were done by this amazing guy, Adrian, up in, um, up in Montreal. It, was, it just always, always surprised us. He was a young guy about our age, and he just always, uh, always really, um, every day brought something new to set that was really exciting. Maestro FX. There's no way that I out there requiem for a dream that uh, I, I could do a movie without Ellen Burstyn. We had such a great time together, and um, I definitely, you know, it wasn't really. Uh, it, it's really a two, you know, two-hander. Uh, the Fountain. It's it's Hugh and Rachel's movie, but um, you know, I I, I I had to work with Ellen, so I, I created this character. Lillian Gazzetti, Lillian for my grandmother, and um, Gazzetti for my uh, my first film teacher. There was a you know real discussion about um, color and uh, light uh, about. Two years before we ever got the set, me, Maddie Libatique, my DP, and, and James Chinlin, my production designer, um, sat around and um, you know talked about light and and what it would represent. And and Hugh very much is you know is a is we thought of as a vampire. You know he's he, he there is a sense of his you know immortality, and uh, he's very much in the shadow, very much in the dark. Um, while Izzy is, is very much in the light. 
And for us, you know, the entire film was, was a journey from darkness to light. In fact, you can, um, you know, the opening battle scene and its darkness <clears throat> to, to the end of the film, which is almost a complete white, um, was a conscious journey. Uh, once again, here we are moving through a celestial star field in a certain way. I'm still here. There you go, you can see how old I am. I guess people don't call it junior high anymore. I think it's called middle school. Um, although I did see in a movie recently someone else say junior high school. I'm not sure exactly. This is one of my favorite shots, sneaking between the telescope and uh, and Hugh. I mean, she, you know, the, the, the acting styles between the two of them was very interesting. Hugh is an exceptional uh, actor and, and incredibly skillful technically, probably from all the work he's done, um, you know, in, in action films and stuff. Um, and he was just so willing to try things in every different way. We would run take after take and we would try every single emotion that could possibly work and throw out ideas to each other and um, we would just do take after take and it wasn't like uh, you know he wasn't getting it it was more like hey would this work better if we tried this hey would we work better if we did this and he really was um, an incredible sport about it I mean you know there are actors that give you two three takes and then they don't want to give you any more and <clears throat> I don't really understand that philosophy because you know you wait all day for them to light and then you wait all day for every, you know, hair, makeup, and everything else to work out. And then finally you're on set. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the fun of it. That's what, you know, actors and directors should be doing is, is, is trying stuff out. So, you know, I'm always up for, or, for, for another take. Um, now everything you see in that screen is, um, is organic. It was photographed through a microscope. Um, and they're all different types of chemical reactions. Called that the king of the world shot, named it after the Titanic shot with Leo at the end of the, uh, the bow of the ship. And that was an improvised shot. We were on set and, and uh, Hugh was just playing around and he was sitting there and uh, at the front of the ship and I just saw it and we rolled camera and we went for it. This, you know, you could see um, Izzy's, uh, Izzy's hair is just growing back. Um, you know, she just, that, her backstory was that, you know, she's been fighting her cancer and 
her hair is finally coming back from um, about with uh, with through chemo and uh, but her illness has come back and that's sort of what's beneath the surface Rachel spent two days in that bathtub doing this and once again she was very much like Hugh um, in that she was so open to trying things in, in so many different ways and uh, we would do take after take after take for this tiny scene um, because we just kept exploring it and trying it in different ways and there was so much great stuff to choose from in the editing room of uh, ideas and I mean really the film could be cut together in, in many many different ways because of the uh, different different feelings and emotions and life that the actors brought to each scene. This story of not feeling hot and cold is actually based on um, some some true stuff that uh, some true stories we heard from some of the people who we met who who um, who who had loved ones that had died young. I love their different skin tones. Um, that was natural, but it really worked for the film where Rachel's more towards uh, the yellow and uh, Hugh's more towards the pink, but uh, that actually worked well for life and, uh, and, and death. film we got to got to work again with um, Clint Mansell and the Kronos Quartet uh, you know I've had a great collaboration with Clint on Pi and Requiem and uh, and now on the fountain and uh, it was um, this was just such a touching score um, that and when it started to come to form we, 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 we didn't know going into it that we were going to go back to the Kronos but um, as soon as string showed up, we realized that it was gonna have to, we were gonna have to work with those guys, and it's just such an amazing collaboration uh, between Clint and uh, and the Kronos. But uh, you know, there was also an element of it that we always knew there was some type of psychedelic rock element that we wanted for it. So we thought about a different, a lot of different possibilities of who could do it, and eventually we sort of settled on band from Scotland called Mogwai and uh, they just sort of uh, they're known for doing 10, 15, 20 minute long jams and uh, they we showed them the film and uh, it was quite a crazy recording schedule because Clint record you know 
uh, scored the entire thing in New York, and then over Christmas and New Year's, I guess of 2005 or something, he first he had to travel to um, first he had to travel to Scotland to record Mogwai. Then we went to San Francisco to get the Chronos, and then we had to come back to New York to put it all together. That spinning shot that you just saw of the car racing by. Um, you know, is connected to the two other traveling shots of Tomas and Tom in the film. There's the um, sequence of him shooting through his space bubble. That's at the beginning of the film that we already saw. And coming up, we'll see the one of him traveling on horseback. And uh, the reason it's it's like that, it's so such a strange pass, was because I wanted to make connections between the different time periods. And... Um, the uh, the movement from um, you know normally would have been done and much cheaper would have been done just sort of tracking from left to right camera would have been on the ground and an operator would have been there and just you know pan from left to right as as the car zapped by but when I realized that we were dealing with a spaceship in space I I, um, I realized that there is no left to right there is no up to up and down um, but it freed me up to put the camera somewhere different. And so uh, doing that in space and then doing that in the present and then in the past sort of made a lot of sense to me. All the science stuff is, you know, that that uh, lucite uh, box that uh, the monkey's in, all that stuff is, is based in truth. Uh, um, Ari Handel, um, who's a PhD, um, so I guess he's Dr. Handel, and w he was a roommate of mine in college, and after college he went in off and got a PhD at, um, at uh, NYU in neuroscience while I was struggling to try and make pie. And uh, as he got his PhD, he realized he was sort of done with academia and he wanted to try something different. And so I started talking to him about this, the fountain. Uh, little, little did he know he'd spent as much time on the fountain as he did on getting his PhD. But we based a lot of that um, science stuff on, on his real work. And, uh, you know, so that was all kind of true. I love the I love the painter. You know, Maddie's work in this was just great. Um, and so, um, Tommy discovers the book on his desk, waiting for him. And uh, it starts, and it'll bring him back, probably to my uh, one of my favorite shots in the film. Stephen McCaddy was a 
interesting find. Um, we went up to Canada to shoot, and uh, <clears throat> we didn't know what you know who would we find to um, you know be in the film. And uh, but Stephen McCaddy came in, and uh, it was just so clear that we had found our Grand Inquisitor. He's a tremendous actor. Someone I was just I can't remember who. I was just talking about Steve McCaddy being this great, great, great actor. Um, and whatever happened to him? And I said, well, actually, I just worked with him. Um, so he he has a lot of respect in, in, in the world. He really, uh, those are all real open wounds. He's that type of actor. Boyd Banks just has a great, unique face. And uh, I, I really love that set. We basically had, you know, such a small budget that we really were really limited with um, how much we could shoot. Um, I think we had one day to shoot all the Inquisitor stuff, and it was a really, really tough day. That's really his blood, too. He was very happy about that little move right there where he got that little corner of Spain. Starfield. So, you know, once again, symbolically connected to, uh, well, the whole movement of the film. Cliff Curtis, who shows up here, is an uh, actor I met. Well, I, I actually uh, at one point went to um, New Zealand uh, to try and cast uh, an actor. And uh, didn't work out. But while I was up there, I, I had met Cliff Curtis once in a, uh, at some point in Los Angeles. And he lived uh, in uh, a small town in New Zealand. And I just called him up, and he invited me to stay at his house. And he took me to his uh, tribal lands. And... His uh, and we had a great time together and just became good friends. And so, uh, once again, I, I, I wrote this role for him. Here's that overhead shot I was talking about. This was the first night of shooting, it's actually a Friday night. We kind of cheated, uh by adding, adding a night and, uh, you know, this was a great location. It really, you know, could pass for, you know, 16th century. And uh, it, I kind of learned a lot about how great he was gonna be. I mean, his whole movement across there, I mean, we, we, we had been rehearsing it with a um, stunt double, just didn't work. See that twitching right be underneath his right eye? It's funny, uh, yeah, you can see it right there. A lot of people over the course of this film thought it was a technical problem, like there was something wrong with the camera. Digital effects team even tried to take it out, and it's actually the reason, one of the reasons I cast Stephen McCaddy. I noticed it. He just has this, uh, I don't know if it's voluntary or involuntary, um, tremor. 
the Inquisition was pretty hardcore, and, and hanging prisoners by their feet was actually, you know, pretty uh, mild. Most of the time they hung people from their wrists and lifted them up from their wrists so that their shoulder blades were dislocated. And we tried to do that, but uh, there was just no way to, um, to really pull it off safely. Um, once again, all the stuff, all the Inquisitor stuff was shot in, in a single day. It's, it's all we had. But Hugh's movement in that first day, you know, the way he changed his pace, like he first he went fast and he went slow and then he went fast. And just as compared to the stunt double, it, it was the last time we ever used a stunt double to line up a shot. We just always knew Hugh was going to do it completely different and uniquely and, and much better. It's just such a creativity and originality in how he moved. A lot of the crew was encouraged to uh, shave their head and, and join the monks because we couldn't afford enough monks. And uh, it was hard, you know, cause it was a hard job because, uh, I mean, I'm serious about that. Even though they just sat there, the monks, you know, they couldn't watch the stunt, which is pretty hard because, you, you know, these people are falling in front of you and all you want to do is look up. But, you know, I kind of threatened them with Lot's wife and Sodom Gomorrah. If they looked up, they would turn to salt. Uh, this was, you know, one of my favorite sets, of course, um, Cordoba, it was based on. My dream has always been to retire in Spain. I'm a big Spainophile. And uh, I've spent a lot of time there. And uh, was in Cordoba a few years ago. And uh, I just love the idea of, of, of the infinite that that mosque at Cordoba did. And uh, the fact that I think it was uh, the Emperor Charles V um, put this um, Catholic, uh, you know, uh, staging area in the center of it. Um, it's just an incredible building, an incredible mixture of um, of architectural styles. But uh, take close notice of um, Queen Isabel's dress. This is not the same Isabel as Isabel and Ferdinand. You know, it's very much uh, a fairy tale. This film, I've always wanted people to sort of see it as a fairy tale, but a fairy tale for adults, a psychedelic fairy tale is what I like to call it, and what someone in the press once called it, which I, I was really happy with. Um, but take a close look at her dress. You know, get a sense of some of what this whole scene is about. Mark Margolis is, uh, you know, an old veteran. He he uh, he saved Pi with his great talent, 
and uh, I, I've always felt like I owed him. Uh, and uh, so, um, you know, because Requiem for a Dream, he did a very tiny role. But, um, and when I started writing this and I came up with the character of Father of Eli, I, it was very much staged for Mark, you know. I'm not sure about that uh, robe on him, though. It really isn't flattering on his pot belly. <laughs> and, uh, but he's a, he's a beautiful guy, even though he's, um, he loves to drive me crazy at times. There's very much a idea about shapes in the film and, uh, and how shapes evolved across time. For us, you know, the past uh, very much represented, it was very much represented by a triangle, which you see uh, as a symbol on that dagger, which connects to Shababa, which connects to the pyramids, which connects to the rooftops in Seville, um, or whatever Spanish city we, we were doing. Um, so the triangle for us became a major shape throughout the, um, throughout the time period of, um, of, of Spain and, and the Mayan Empire. And uh, then in the present, you know, we thought about what the shape was. And, it, you know, it's very clear we live in a world of squares from, you know, TV sets to couches to billboards to computer screens everything around us is squares in fact uh, it is you know in many ways the most prominent shape I mean even the rooms our windows everything is rectangular and square and so a triangle from three sides to a square four sides and then as we shot into the future it became very clear that the the, the shape of the future was was the was the circle you know once again another way that we got the idea of, of the bubble ship you know, you had celestial bodies, stars, planets, and the ship, all circles, all curves, no squares, no triangles. This scene was one of the early scenes, you know, I ever wrote for the film. It evolved in many, many, many different ways. But revealing the great secret of the Tree of Life Protected by the Mayans was um, one of our early ideas. Once again, those candle lights. To me, you know, this whole set was was an enchanted forest, and uh, the queen being the tree, and uh, the trees being this infinite forest around her and the little lights could be fireflies but uh, the idea was that when they um, when they you threw them out of focus there was no difference between them and the stars behind Tom in the future there was another inspiration moment all of our characters in all three time periods once again had an inspiration moment it's funny because you know a lot of people have talked about how the film all works together and we definitely have a perception of how all three time periods we, you know, and in fact, I think it's pretty clear. Um, but I don't know if I really want to talk about it because, um, you know, I think part of the enjoyment of, of the film is, is the discussion of how everything is connected. But it really does all add up. 
um, to one way, and a lot of people have figured it out, and, and um, you know, it's it's really not that complicated. But and I think it's more of the fun of the piece of of you know who's actually exist and who doesn't exist and who's a memory and who's a story and you know what's a metaphor and what's not a metaphor I'll tell you there's you know as far as characters there's very very few metaphors in this film so that's a hint for you that's a kind of repeating shot we had a lot was looking down on the characters and you know if you look at the way the film is shot it's very much shot as a three-dimensional crucifix i think it's called a cruciform north south west east and up and down and the reason we chose that kind of way of shooting the film was um well for lots of reasons but um it was about trying to create structure into a three-dimensional space of space of outer space and uh you know, shooting left, right, forward and back made a lot of sense, but the up and down was sort of given to us by um, by by doing all of our homework in space. This was sort of a repeating shot as well as Tommy walking up steps. We have Tom walking up steps, steps through the film. And this was kind of a reenactment of, of the top of the pyramid. That's how we saw this. You know, the truth revealed. And, uh, you know, this very much adds to the mythology of, of the film. It's, it's funny, that symbol in the codex which is a um, image that's redrawn in many different ways through lots of different uh, Mayan art from all over um, <clears throat> Latin America it, you know it really is the you know it, it's funny because that symbol was in my head a lot and I didn't realize how similar it was to this kind of closing image of, of Tom dying deep in the future when Shababa explodes and his body is ripped apart and particles rain down in the tree and the tree comes back to life. That was, um, you know, right there in, in all that ancient art. It's funny, uh, until I saw the poster of, of the fountain, the, the American poster for the release, I didn't um, make that, uh, I didn't make that connection. Um, about how close those symbols were. It was all kind of subconscious. It seems obvious now, but... Looking down on a ship floating through space, you could actually see Tom walking around in there, if you look closely. This was kind of uh, a 
tough scene because um, that role of uh, Dr. Alan Lipper was uh, originally we we um, we cast the uh, neurosurgeon, uh, a great neurosurgeon, um, very very famous to to play that role. He he had helped us tremendously. He talked a lot to Rachel, and to Hugh, and to myself. Gave us a lot of time. Showed showed us his work. And so uh, Rachel had the idea of, hey, why don't we cast him for um, the, to be in the film? And so I, I liked the idea. We cast him, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, um, you know, don't don't cast him. You know, don't, it's I don't think he cast a real neurosurgeon to play a neurosurgeon. He got there the day of, and it, it, he was just very very nervous, and um, he just couldn't do it. I mean, in real life, he was incredible person with tremendous gravitas. But as soon as, you know, he, he started to do some lines, he, he really just froze up. And his wife tried to help him and coach him through it, but it just made it worse. And so at the last minute, I, I reached out to, to an actor that I, had impressed me, um, you know, in, in, in a script reading we did. And, and we brought him in and we were kind of saved. But if you look, his, his medical jacket is a little bit too big for him. And that's because uh, the actual neurosurgeon was, was a much bigger guy. That was a shot we just found, which happens. This shot is an homage to um, a great Akira Kurosawa shot in Ikiru. It's, it's pretty much stolen uh, verbatim. Um, we changed it a little bit because it was Montreal and, and because of the location we were able to find, but. Um, there's there's a shot at the beginning of a of a reel in in Ikiru that's that's very very similar to this. And and both films thematically sort of, you know, use it in a similar way. A character deep in their head who's kind of, you know, pulled out of it by by reality. My dad is uh, right over uh, Ellen's uh, left shoulder. He's uh, been in all three films, and uh, he's becoming a better and better actor every chance he gets. There he is, the gray-haired guy to the left. This was another shot we just sort of uh, played with. Um, and uh, found on set. Another monkey operation. I remember Hugh's performance in this and being really impressed with um, his intensity. Remember when we, we we started doing this um, scene and uh, the camera was we the first shot was the camera all the way up in the corner there and 
we started shooting and Hugh's intensity was just so tremendous and uh, I didn't want to lose it so I pulled the camera down and rushed it to this close-up because I, I really wanted to capture what he was doing. Sometimes you gotta just do that because uh, you know the actors just can't wait and hold it for a close-up. It just starts coming out in a wide shot and if you're gonna want it then you gotta get down there and get it. My dad finding the light perfectly. I love James said here, you know. Uh, Putting the uh, base, putting the um, putting the lab into a basement, you could see through the windows, people walking by up above. This was just something that happened on set. James set. I saw that pattern there, and I just liked it, and liked the way it worked. It wasn't wasn't a planned shot. We just it, and it was a set, which is usually when you're on a set, it's not that beautiful that you actually find something you want to focus on and give a close up. This we had a whole improvised scene between the two of them that was just great, but because the film plays out from from pretty much Tommy's point of view, we didn't want to um, you know break that uh, break that language and then go in and have a whole scene. Even though emotionally it probably would have been pretty effective to have Ellen Burstyn and um, Rachel Weisz uh, acting face to face, but uh, there was some great, great, great stuff that the two of them did. So uh, now we get into the Moses Morales scene, which for me was the um, emotional, uh, it is kind of the big emotional scene of the film. Um, I, I associate very much with the scene in Requiem for a Dream with uh, Harry and uh, and Sarah. He realizes his mom's on drugs, if you remember that one. But this, this very much was, was a scene like that and, you know, Blown, you know, just so impressed with Rachel's performance here. If, if you watch her big speech on Moses Morales, is, is is a single take. It's funny when we were cutting her, we we did so many different takes of it. We tried cutting together different pieces, and we had kind of this Frankenstein at the end. I mean, it worked. It was very emotional, and I was happy with it. But then I said, you know what? We should just look through her shots again and 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 see the different takes she did. And um, Sure enough, there was that one take, which was just overall having this one take without cuts was just um, far outweighed keeping it apart. Moses Morales was is an actual person. Uh, it's funny, the woman who did video assist on, on The Fountain actually knew him. He's a, a kind of a spiritual uh, guy, a shaman of sorts who... Um, 
lives down in Palenque uh, in Mexico and gives tours of, uh, of the ruins. And we met with him when we did a research trip early on in, in, in the making of the fountain. Ari, myself, Eric Watson, the producer, and, and our location manager, Dow Griffiths, um, went down. And this is part of the perks of making a film with the studio. We went down to, um, down to Guatemala, Honduras, and southern Mexico and went around to all these incredible Maya ruins from um, Yaxilan to Palenque to Copan. Basically, all the great Mayan, uh, you know, great great Mayan cities. Um, you know, we missed uh, quite a few of them, but we saw a big chunk. And and just as from place to place, we just hooked up with all these different um, scholars and and leading thinkers. And when we got to Palenque, we met Moses Morales, and he told me um, this story about uh, about his father. One take, Rachel Weiss. Now that's acting, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you know, you have to have the um, the training of, of working on the stage for years to, um, you know, there, you know, a lot of actors today that can't maintain emotion like that and have it build and change and become something different. Um, we're very lucky to capture that. Now, if you remember that that view you just saw was kind of very similar to what you just saw in with Tomas and, and Queen Isabel in, in the court. There was something about traveling up that felt different than what you normally see in sci-fi films. If you look really closely, that is actually the tree ship spinning um, in the distance. That was a model, and everything you see in this frame, you know, is real and existed. Uh, we we built that on, on a soundstage in, in Montreal. Uh, that tree existed. And that shot was done without visual effects. The hairs were actually just accomplished with simple static electricity.
you'll notice this framing, that, that, that profile shot, is similar to um, shots you'll later see when, when Tomas is up on top of the, um, on top of the pyramid in, with, in front of the Tree of Life. No difference with Tom here at the Tree of Life. That's the sound of uh, trucks backing up. I, uh, I I don't know where that came from. That was just so important to me that the sound of the trucks backing up, kind of that um, you know, 4 a.m. you know beginning of dawn morning sound of a city just waking up. And this takes us back uh, into the book, into the past. And this takes us once again, back in time. The way the film is uh, constructed, there were many ways to put the film together. Um, and we tried many different ways. We ended up with the film pretty much exactly how we wrote it. I, w I think one day, perhaps, I'll do a different version of the film. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to even have fans out there mash it up and, and try different ways to combine it because um, the story does fit together in many different ways. The version you have now was in many ways, uh, you know, what we always preconceived of it being. Once again, the triangle in the past and, uh, you know, part of shooting this in the rain, the most fun was um, having Mark Margolis suffer from the uncomfortableness of being wet all day. This looks like a kind of a fake... Uh, Pyramid, even though it was real, I never liked that shot, but it was the best we could do at the time. And this tent was, you know, we brought a lot of mud in. We built all these sets, including including the Great Pyramid, inside of a uh, giant long factory that used to build trains in Montreal. Um, we brought in a, we basically built a jungle in there and 
brought it in tons of mud after you know that many workers and that many actors and many people walking around and all that water it was it was really a mess <laughs> and so we all got really dirty i remember you know the first day was um you know when i when we lined up all the conquistadors and stuff the one thing that was missing was mud and so we just uh, mixed up a bunch of dirt and water and uh lathered it on and that was sort of the missing i mean it's funny you read um you read a you read a Bernal Diaz's uh, the conquest of New Spain, which is kind of you know a, a foot soldier's uh, description of uh, Cortez's uh, conquering of of the Aztecs, which um, uh, you know was a big big sort of research volume for us. Um, and every time that the conquistadors met new Native Americans, the uh, getting lost in the uh, action adventure here. Hold on one second. So anyway, so um, the uh, so Bernal Diaz book always talks about when the uh, Indians met the um, conquistadors, they uh, always brought these um, people with them that had all these sweet-smelling incense and they, you know, the, Bernal Diaz interpreted as, you know, some type of ritual of cleansing but what it turned out is that, you know, these conquistadors stunk. You know, they were in the jungle in all this armor without taking showers. And they have Americans who were all hanging out, um, you know, living at home. were all, you know, clean and soaked up. And there was these incredibly smelly, hairy creatures that showed up. And, you know, for their, for their dignitaries, they wanted, uh, you know, to keep the air fresh so that they could actually talk to them. Once again, Mark Margolis suffering in the mud. Always a pleasure, Mark. Always a pleasure. Here we go again. Um, and th this is a reprise of, of the beginning of the film and uh, um, connects, hopefully, for the audience uh, where, we, where we were and how it all comes together. That's a little clue, that shot right there, of how it all works. And uh, it's funny, um, you know, you don't normally see in these revival where they actually bang the chest. And that's, uh, you know, when someone's not flatlining, but their, um, their heart is irregular, you kind of whack it to try and bring it back to, in, in, into form. That's all Rachel being... Uh, Dealing with uh, dealing with uh, chest compressions, which I'll tell you, it's a really hard thing to pull off um, because it's just very dangerous. You know, often when when people get revived, they they um, get ribs broken and stuff, and so we had to be really careful. This character, to me, um, uh, I you know, a very personal kind of beat. I'll leave it to your imagination what it's about.
tried to do a steady cam shot here, um, following him running to the door. It was going to be the only steady cam shot in the film, but he was such a fast runner that we just couldn't keep up with him, even with a steady cam. And uh, so I was never happy um, with it. Uh, so I just changed the shot. Hugh's anger here was just so inspired. Lots of good spit. And uh, I love this transition. The idea of connecting time through breath. Once again, everything here is, everything behind him, keyed in, was organic. All that stuff back there was, some of it's yeast growing via time lapse, different types of paint pigments, all different types of stuff. I kind of felt that the reason the ship was cold um, was because, um, you know, the tree died and uh, life was sucked out of the ship and, and it made sense to me that uh, suddenly everything would be out of balance. And that's, you know, for me, Hugh's character lives in the future in balance with that tree. It's, uh, you know, a biosphere and a system that kind of um, survived on its, on its own. It took from Hugh and Hugh took from it and together there was a balance, but not perpetual, not forever. Hugh was constantly, slightly pulling away and uh, ultimately destroyed the system, very much like our, our time here on Earth as we you know, slowly watch what we thought was imbalance, you know, decay and get polluted and, and now it's starting to kill us. That for me was one of the hardest scenes to cut in the film. Uh, I just, it was very hard to figure out what level of intensity. Um, it was funny when we shot it out in the field, uh, it, he start, it started off, it just wasn't working and eventually after few takes it just just connected for Hugh and I, I remember Ellen Burstyn how impressed she was that with ha Hugh and how he got there but in the early cuts of the film I didn't include it because I felt it was um, you know a very intense thing to say that um, you know death is a disease and even though really that's you know a big theme in the film it, it, I, I didn't know uh, how it would play but um, ultimately I just surrendered my faith into Hugh's performance as we did here this this was one of the great moments when this was when I realized how great Hugh was we shot this early on and watching him break down and and do this um, 
take after take after take. We did it till he was dry. Basically, no tears would come out of him. He was he fully was dehydrated. His calves were cramping, and uh, he was done. This we actually did, although um, that wasn't Hugh. I, uh, I found a guy with a lot of tattoos on set and asked him if he mind taking, uh, <clears throat> adding a new tattoo to his collection. And so, uh, you know, he got a little bump and, uh, and, and went for it. Nico, why didn't you, uh, why didn't you do it? Did I offer you? Did I ask you to do it? I don't think I was there that day. <laughs> Nico would have done it, but, uh. Actually, it would have messed with your uh, tattoos on your fingers. I think this makes a lot of people uncomfortable because, you know, it's rare you see a man cry on film, um, especially a man cry for uh, over love. And it's a shame that uh, that type of sentimentality is not uh, represented in film. So I, I think it turns turns some people off. A lot of people, a lot of women told me that they had never seen a man um, like that before. And they were kind of, you know, didn't know how to handle it. He was scared to shave his head because, uh, I guess back in acting school, they called him P-head. Because he, uh, I guess people felt he had a small head. But I, I think he, it's incredibly well proportioned. Tattoo work was really hard. I mean, if you if you notice, the tattoos actually actually go from more faded and uh, and more blurry to more and more sharp and intense. And that was the great work of of Judy Chin and her team. That um, image through the tele microscope is actually some of uh, is more raw Peter Parks footage. Uh, some of that imagery we used for uh, for space, just a lot less process. So that's really what we started with, and then the visual effects teams kind of turn that into uh, the space vistas. I remember when we shot this, we did so many different takes of it. Because I wasn't really sure what tone uh, Hugh should have at this point in the film. Um, I had him play it as a conquistador. I had him play it as Tom of the future. And I had to play it as Tommy. That's ultimately what we used. Love this moment from Antonio. He, uh, you know, very sad. And this begins sort of a 12-minute piece by um, Clint Mansell. One piece of music that sort of takes us all the way into the climax of the film.
And for the first time we reveal Shababa, the actual star behind the nebula. And it was, you know, a challenging thing to do. Uh, it would have been much easier doing a CGI, but um, if you look at those clouds, that's, that's actually yeast growing, those clouds down uh, at the bottom of that frame. You could see it out there, um, outside the ship as well. Um, but uh, we all of Shababa was done organically. That's um, it was all done, um, as I said, shot about the size of a postage stamp through a microscope. But you know, showing Shababa is always a very risky thing. It, it's like you know, showing you know, it's, it's the effect people been waiting for for the entire film. So. You know, you got to try and pull off something that's going to look good. And to look good, you got to hope it looks good in three, four, five, ten years. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, because we shot something that's an actual chemical reaction, it, it, it won't date. Time will tell. This is the time in the movie where I recommend you pause the tape, you know, do what you need to do if, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying, and then press play and come back and watch it. Ninety-six frames per second. Love when you you work at the, you know, in-camera high speeds. It's always, always um, exciting to next day in dailies to see how reality has changed into something different. No matter how many times I've done it, when you still see slow motion motion film projector, it's just such a thrill. You could actually see Hugh and Rachel in this shot. We shot them on a turntable, green screen turntable, and then somehow they ended up in there, but that's the actual actors in there. And thus begins the road back. He finally understands, and uh, the trip begins to the end. What does he understand, you, you ask? I don't know. You're going to have to watch the film again. Please do.
And this time, instead of pulling out, we pushed in. That's the only difference in the two scenes. The long tube leading to light. Now this is actually Hugh Jackman climbing that tree. That is not a stuntman. As I said earlier, what we realized is that Hugh Jackman was a better stuntman than the stuntman. And he completely did this. In fact, he did every stunt in this movie, including all these lotus position shots. If you look at his clothes and, and you see the, um, the way they drift in sort of zero G, we did that by putting him underwater. Once again, Hugh demanded that he does that did that and so for two days Hugh was underwater holding his breath in lotus position doing turns and flips and it was amazing we ended up replacing his head <laughs> um, so it wasn't underwater because no matter what when you shoot underwater there's a, just a distortion and uh, it was pretty impossible to um, make it look good so we ended up reshooting his head and, and replacing that performance but his body and his clothes is Hugh's body underwater. A lot of people um, have talked about this, um, you know, next scene and, and what it means. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed the, um, the dialogue about it. And, uh, so I won't shed any light on it. But... Um, That's all I got to say. And so, the last obstacle out of his way, he enters. It's funny, this, this, the way Matty lit this was very different than what I expected. He went for something very realistic um, as far as the light quality. And uh, it, it, it's amazing because you, you know, when you're on set and you see those lights lighting it up, it just, it looks so artificial, but, um, you know, I was pretty happy with the results. Once again, we start repeating some images, and if you think about where this fits in the kind of storyline of the film, you'll understand um, how it connects to the future. This was one of the first sequences I wrote when I, um, you know, in the first draft. Well, I mean, in the first draft of the Fountain. Um, this sequence is almost exactly how it ended up in the film. It just never changed. 
it, you know, sometimes when you write, um, you get one of those moments where it just makes sense and it's just very clear and it kind of writes itself. You're just sort of sitting back and watching it sort of all unfold and happen. That very much happened with the scene. Um, the whole sensory of, of, of seeing the flowers and smelling them. and That was in the moment five, six, seven years ago of him healing himself and eventually of him drinking from the tree and, and, and the results that happened. You know, since he was Wolverine and he had a lot of healing wounds, I, I didn't want to do the same thing where you actually saw on camera the healing wound. You know, we had just seen so much of it in film and everyone would know exactly how he did it. So I just got some Alka-Seltzer, put it on the wound and put water in his fingers and, you know, just tried it a different way. It was very low budget, but uh, no one's complained. It felt pretty effective to me. So Shabal was starting to unleash and, and drinking from the tree of life gives him a vision of of all is, that is to come. But of course the conquistador doesn't doesn't quite understand, doesn't get, doesn't get it. And thus begins his end in the kind of cosmic justice way that he should end. So that's uh, mostly done. We built a giant puppet of Hugh's body and uh, put all these pneumatics and and uh, of, of plants that you know when you pushed air through these bladders shot up through the puppet and uh, gave the um, Gave the illusion of what we were doing. And there's the uh, the ring that Tommy lost. Tomas earned. Tom refines. And Chibaba really starts to unleash. Its end is near. The ship fading behind him as he heads further towards the star. And he fulfills the queen's prophecy and, well, the queen's command. This is why you uh, hire Mogwai and Kronos was for what they gave us here. star went through all the colors of the uh, spectrum as it was uh, shrunk and that's that's how a supernova does explode and that shot was took us a very long time many 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 versions to get it on the HD DVD they actually show uh, some of the path to getting to it
was a hand double that takes that seat and it always bothers me because the hand double just had some real bad arthritis and his kind of bony thumb I felt was unfair for Hugh but you know Hugh was too busy doing other stuff for us so sometimes you have to make compromises That to me, if anything, should be the poster of the, of, the, of the film, The Seat About to Go Into the Grave. Well, very much what the film's about. You know, this idea that, you know, when we're done, we go back to where we've come from. It's an old idea, you know. We're all born out of out of the Big Bang, and the same material that was unleashed by the Big Bang is the same material that forms us and will form humanity and all the world that's yet to come. I know I didn't give that much away, but I hope you uh, enjoyed... Um, a small chat. I, I you know, I, I watched the film and it's been uh, it was such a journey for all of us. And over those six, seven years, so much went through our heads about what this film is that I really, in one path pass, can't really. Um, just all these different memories came up of different ideas and different things we talked about, and I hope um, you know some of them were enlightening, and perhaps down the line we'll meet and. Uh, we could have more conversations about it. Um, you know, for me, it was the type of film that I think uh, we worked really hard on, and there are many details in the film, and I feel that people um, uh, will, you know, the, that there's more to get from the film the more you sit back and just sort of let it soak in. Nico, I want to thank you for uh, doing this. I hope people listen to it, and I hope people enjoy it, and uh, if not, you could blame Nico. He's pretty easy to get in touch with, and, you know, feel free to um, give him a hard time. Thanks. Now starts, uh, what'd you say? Thanks. You're welcome. Uh, now starts, yeah, he'll probably cut that part out, but we'll see. Um, you know, the, even the credits for me, we, we, we thought long and hard about it, and you know, from that white of the explosion of Shababa, as it sort of dissolves away, we sort of wanted to hint at the birth of, of new stars. And uh, for us, that's, that's what the end, end, end sequence became. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Hope you're all well. Peace.